Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and today we have a very fascinating guest. She is a family medicine physician originally from Montreal, Canada. She earned her undergraduate and medical degrees from McGill University and completed her residency training in family medicine at UCLA. A member of the American Board of Family Medicine, she enjoys seeing patients of all ages, especially growing families with young babies and budding adults. Her company, Lactation Lab, which is an informed pregnancy sponsor, was born out of a personal need to understand what was in her own breast milk, after which it became a passion to help other mothers optimize their milk and their baby's nutrition. She's married with two young children and lives and practices in the Los Angeles area, Dr. Stephanie Canelli. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So there's two topics I'd love to talk to you about today. First of all, family medicine, which is interesting and fascinating, and I don't know enough about it. And also what's in breast milk, which is interesting and fascinating, and I don't know enough about it. But you know a lot about both of those. So let's talk about family medicine first. What is that? Well, it's fascinating, you know, so you mentioned I'm from Montreal, and I think if you took the pay scale out of the equation and when it comes to physicians and choosing residency programs, if you took the money out of the equation, most doctors actually go into family medicine. So family medicine is the practice of families. We see patients of all ages. So it's interesting that in my uh, med school class, over 50% of students went into family medicine. In Canada? In Canada. So you're saying in Canada, most people go into family medicine? Most people go into family medicine. But here in the U.S., not so much? Because you don't bump into people. You say, what kind of doctor are you? I rarely ever hear somebody say family medicine. I think that has to do with the structure of the healthcare system. Here, you know, in Canada, we value primary care, and everything starts with your primary care physician. I think also salaries are much more even out across all specialties. So that's what I mean. Like, if you take money out of the equation, most people will choose to practice family medicine. Because they like to see the whole family? Exactly. Okay. And then I think what ends up happening over time is that people kind of tailor their practices. So they will do, um, they will train in family medicine, which is a three-year residency program, just like pediatrics and internal medicine here in the States. And um, the difference is, is that we focus more on outpatient medicine. So when we're doing our residency training, we're doing less inpatient medicine, like, for example, when I'm comparing to pediatrics or internal medicine, which means less intensive care uh, unit um, rotations, NICU rotations, and so forth. So we're getting more prepared to take care of the patients in the office day-to-day life. Versus pediatrics and internal medicine, they're getting these folks ready to then go into a subspecialty like endocrinology, rheumatology, or a pediatric nephrology, whatever it may be. So they're having to take care of more patients and learn to take care of more patients that are hospitalized. So that's the big difference. And so I find it really interesting, and I love the fact that you wanted to talk about family medicine because it's a passion of mine. Um, when I came here, and probably in my first year of residency, I realized, well, things are very different in the States. I think there is a huge financial decision when people make their choice of which residency program to choose in this country. And I think that's why there's so many, you know, competitors to go into these very, very high-paying specialty procedure-oriented residencies uh, yeah, versus so primary care. There's so many thoughts flooding my head right now. First of all, I picture maybe from the movies back in the day when there was just a family doctor who you would call and they'd come over with their little black bag. And I don't even know what was in there. Maybe like a thermometer, 
to see if you're going to live or die and like aspirin to make you more comfortable until it happened. I don't really know. And then it just kind of shifted from them coming to you to now you go to the doctor. And then from there, just more and more specializing, you know, uh, bone doctor, liver doctor, kidney doctor, mm-hmm. heart doctor, and then even subspecialties. I don't just do bones. I only do the upper body or the lower body or just the arm or just the thumb or just the top of the thumb. And on some level, it seems that having a specialist for each little area of the body has an upside, which is they really know that area of the body incredibly well and everything that can happen and the best ways to fix it. But also, you know, I practice more of a holistic healthcare, which is take a step back and look at the whole person. And the more specialized we go, I think to some degree we lose that overall viewpoint. And so, you know, when I was in chiropractic school, one example they used to give all the time is that when you step on a dog's tail, it barks. So if you look at the vocal cords to find out why they're barking so much, you're not going to find the source of the problem. So in some ways in my mind, having family physicians is sort of taking a step back in time where you have a person who just looks more holistically at everything instead of one little tiny part. And I I presume that if you find issues that need more specialty care, then you make those referrals. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what, you know, I think a lot of people really are very passionate about. And I think there's a lot less burnout in a practice like that when you it's it's about the whole patient, but you you get a really you know long standing per, like personal relationship with them too. And not just an individual, but the whole family. Well, you're also not just playing a, a glorified secretary of like someone comes in and you're doing paper where they say they have chest pain. Well, okay, well I'm let me do this referral to a cardiologist. Oh, your belly hurts. Go to a GI specialist. Do this and that. And I think what ends up happening is exactly that. That's a great analogy with the dog. Is that you have specialists looking at their specialty. But who's there to sort of be the, you know, the take a step back and wait a second? You know, could it just be stress? Could it be diet? Could it be nutrition? Could it be? I'm not saying it is because oftentimes, you know, there could be other things going on. I'm not trying to make that point. But it's just and, and also the relationship. So that's what's really cool about family medicine is that, I mean, even in my practice now, I have one family four generations I see. Wow. So that's pretty cool. And so what's great about that, and, you know, and um, I will have to admit um, selfishly on my on my part, too, is I actually really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. I enjoy going to work, and I feel like I walk into the room, and, I, you know, I know all my patients very well, and I'm just picking up on a conversation we had from, you know, last time we were there. And so it really adds to the quality of the relationship. And that goes two ways. So I think as a physician, it's very rewarding for me because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not just there to take a random history from a new person you know, over and over and over again throughout the day, which can be really tiring at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But the patients, we just connect on a different level. You know what I mean? Like so the good old days. It's exactly like the good old days minus the home visits. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's funny you mention that because when I was in med school at McGill, my preceptor actually did home visits. So we actually got in her car and her black bag was actually quite big and she had a lot of stuff in (laughs) there. (laughs) But we would go around and we would see all of her patients. And to me, it was such a kind of a cool experience to see. We'd walk in and I remember, you know, this one couple, it was their weekly visit with the doctor. So for them, it was like this older couple. I think it was like all week they planned for this. And they had tea and homemade cookies Uh and like you don't want to leave I mean obviously you know I I have a big sweet tooth too so I was sitting there and I was like I'm happy to just stay and listen to this but it was really interesting to see how it works 
both ways. So that doctor, you know, my first preceptor really, she actually loves what she does. She's not burned out. You know, physician burnout is a huge topic right now. Sure. And what I found really interesting about precepting with my old mentor back in Montreal was that she was not burned out. She'd been in practice for 30 years and went to work with a smile on her face. I also think that what's happening, you know, with the U.S. healthcare system and where it's going, I don't think this current model is going to sustain itself. So I do think, you know, sort of similar to your practice, we have to take a look at more a more holistic approach to the patient, and we have to get away from just specialists doing primary care. An observation that I have as well is that, because you said, you know, it's, it's a family physician's not really like a glorified receptionist, right? But I actually see it a different way. I almost see them as a general contractor. And you you don't go, like if you're building a house, you don't go to each individual subcontractor and put them together yourself. You have a general contractor that's overseeing the project. And so what I think the point that you're making is where people just go straight to a specialist for, for this and that, and they're taking a stab in the dark and do all these tests and spend all this money, and then at the end, you know, Sometimes they'll actually end up in my office and they'll say, you're my last hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't even believe in this junk, but you got to help me, Doc. Um, whereas they could have just started with somebody taking an overview of the entire body and mind together. So a general contractor in that way is makes a lot of sense to me that, that that's a, a much better starting point. And bigger than just a general contractor because it's not like you're just an individual in the family's general contractor. You're the general contractor for the whole family. And I want to get into that a little bit because, you know, in my mind, it's it's not our model that we're used to. Like we have a pediatrician for the kids. We have an adult internist for the adults, a geriatric specialist for the older adults. Um, but you're you're all of those in one, so to speak. So what's the difference between having a pediatrician for our kids or a family physician for our kids? That's a very good question. I think, you know, I take a much more holistic approach to the care of a child, too. For example, I have a delayed immunization schedule. We won't get into the all the vaccine stuff today, but um, I don't like to give all the vaccines at once, and I like to see children more often than the regular scheduled visits. I think that, the you know, the bigger picture with a family doctor, I mean, our training, our outpatient training is the same, but I think you just hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it's it's more of a holistic pr- approach. So I, I think it's interesting, too, that family medicine in some areas is actually quite popular. So I've had patients who will say, oh, I grew up with a family doctor. This is what we do. Some parts of the country? Some, some parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And most other countries do practice primary care is done with, you know, by a family doctor. So I, I think that the, you know, the system itself here is just going to have to change over time and it's forced to do so just because of the financial situation and the cost of health care. But what, the point I'm trying to make is there's a lot of other benefits here too. And I think it's the benefit on the, on the part of the doctor, believe it or not. It can be a very rewarding career when you really get to know, you know, a whole family. When you can see a patient who's a teenager and then get engaged and then have a child and you're with them taking care of the whole family along the way, it's very rewarding. When uh, families grow and have babies, so then here usually you see an obstetrician or a midwife, but family physicians, do they do that type of care as well? 
There, um, we're actually in a part, as part of my residency training at UCLA. We did a lot of obstetrics, and now there there are some that do OB and practice OB. I think it's very hard to do that in a large city like Los Angeles, but in rural areas, people do. And in Canada, if you're a low risk pregnancy, just as you would see a midwife, you can see your family doctor. A lot of family doctors do obstetrics, which then it, the higher risk patients are saved for the OBs, mm-hmm. the patients with complications and so forth. So you it's know? like anything else. This specialist sees the people who need to see a specialist. But if you're just pregnant and having a kid, you would just see your family doctor. That's exactly right. And what that does, too, is it also frees up the availability of the specialist so the people who actually need them can get in in a timely fashion. They have access. Um, In a large city, it's difficult because... I think there's a lot of competition with... Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I practice in Santa Monica. I think there's probably about 20... Obese, just from one end of the block to the other, where <laughs> yeah. I am. So, I, you know, I just think getting in, and then people. I, I think there's this, this notion that people think that if I go to this specialist, somehow I'm going to get better care. And mm-hmm. I think that's where maybe you're. I don't know if you're finding that in your practice, but I'm finding that in my practice where I do get that patient who's gone to A, B, C, D, different doctor, a different specialists, and so forth. And then they sit in our office like, okay, you're my last hope. Mm-hmm. No one's figured out what's wrong with me. You know, I mean, even just today, it was the same conversation. And then we actually talked about stress at home. I mm-hmm. mean, what a shocker. It was yeah. stress all along. You know what I mean? Wait, people have stress? Hmm. Well, just a little bit. I've heard of that somewhere along the way. Yeah. Is there stress in Canada? Um, I think so. Different? Just a little bit. It's, it's different. Canadians um, seem more, I don't know, stress seems to, uh, maybe I'm generalizing. I, I am. But it bounces off of you guys a little differently than over here. Well, right, because we play hockey and we just knock it out of each other. I'm going to try that. Yeah. Not playing hockey, but watching people play hockey while I eat stadium food. Yeah. It's actually a lot of fun. Helps with my stress. Mm-hmm. Do you play hockey? I actually do play hockey. Wow. I'm living up to every Canadian stereotype. As we <laughs> yeah. Amazing. My husband and I play. My Both of my kids play. Wow. Yeah. That's and to so me, cool. you know, it was, it's funny because it's <laughs> so weird we're talking about this, but Talk about physician burnout. I actually have a patient, and I he plays hockey, and I said, you've got to get back to playing hockey because there's something about – I'm not very good about going to the gym and exercising because I just don't have time. I don't make time for it. Mm-hmm. But when I play hockey, I'm so bad. I can't focus on anything else. I've got to be careful I don't fall and hurt myself. So for me, it's an hour when I'm playing hockey. I, I can't think of anything else. So what a great, you know, outlet. Yeah. I have that with Netflix. Yeah. I also, though, I try to make sure I don't fall and hurt myself, you know, off the couch. Anyway, back to family medicine. Um, so I do see, like, the, how there could be resistance even just on the pediatrician versus family physician where people feel like a pediatrician is, is a specialist and that's somehow better. Mm-hmm. But that's not always the case. So here, if you wanted to deliver babies, you could? I did. Like, the hospitals, would you can get privileges. I actually did have privileges, and I did that the first three years when I was on faculty at UCLA. Mm-hmm. I did practice OB, and we did all the low-risk OB, and um, yeah, it was fun. I actually stopped doing that because of schedules, and when I had my it's own crazy kids, it was with just the schedule. That's what I was when you said yeah. big city. That's what I thought. Like, how could you possibly yeah. attend birth with the volume of patients that you that would come through your office? You well, just... the UCLA Family Medicine faculty still do OB, and they do rotations one week at a time. Stressful, Mm -hmm. though, you know. I mean, you're getting called all hours of the night and so forth. I think it's the same idea as, like, having a midwife. I mean, you're having, you know, you're having someone who's – there's more to that relationship, I think. You know, I'm I'm just not speaking of a particular OB, but I'm just thinking the regular OB practice, you're going to see 30 patients a day. And are you really – 
getting to know them. And then after they have the child, you see them at the six-week postpartum visit and then maybe a year later for a regular exam. So it's interesting. I also want to make the point that a, a lot of family doctors tailor their practices. So one of my partners tends to see a much older population. So a lot of patients with diabetes and high blood pressure and so forth. After I became pregnant with my first, my practice just naturally changed into a lot of kids and a lot of moms and a lot of families. And Mm -hmm. I think it just, I don't know if it's because I just started spending so much extra time with patients. I don't know how it happened. But so I'd say 50% of my practice now is pediatrics and seeing kiddos and the moms, obviously, you know, if they're not going to usually bring their child to me and they won't also be my patient. Mm -hmm. So that's what's kind of nice about it. And so I started this way of practicing probably about seven or eight years ago where particularly with newborns, like I don't want them walking into a, you know, crowded office, especially during cold and flu season. So I see them during our lunch hour when we don't have patients scheduled. And so I'm able to have these conversations and talk to them. And that's where the whole, you know, interest in breastfeeding and breast milk came about. Oh, yeah. Um, Which is, that's a passion of yours. It's a passion of mine because um, it's probably the first thing in my life that I personally struggled with so much, and I felt like an absolute failure. And so I want to help other moms cope with this and deal with this because I, it was really, really hard for me. I don't. I mean, I don't want to pry it for you to share more than you want to, but you struggled with your first baby. You, have, you no, it, it was. It, that's actually quite interesting. So with my first one, I struggled quite. You know, I struggled a little bit, but you know, it, it wasn't struggled as much. to make milk. No, I was one of those women that produced more milk than you know could feed half the block here. So I had tons of volumes, uh, volume of milk, and I didn't have a lot of issues with my first. It was the second, which is kind of probably what made it more difficult because I thought I knew what I was doing. I'm like experienced mom. I'm a doctor. I mean, geez, like who knows better, right? And um, my daughter stopped gaining weight uh, when she was about two to three months old. And despite producing, I mean, I was producing volumes of milk, you know, and um, despite drinking uh, from a bottle because I was back at work when she was really young, she actually stopped having bowel movements. She'd have a bowel movement every 10 to 12 days, which is stressful in and of itself. And then I literally sat there and I'm like, what is in this milk? I felt like I was starving her. So, you know, I'd sit in my office. I'm like, okay, I'm a doctor here. I probably just ordered 50,000 lab tests on my patients this morning. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Why can't I see what's in my milk? I want to know what's in my milk. And that's how it started. And then I started to see more moms and more babies come in. And there's a lot of pressure out there to breastfeed. And I think in this world we live in right now. You know, you've got the Me Too movement, you all this stuff going on, women supporting women. But wow, women can really be hard on other women when it comes to feeding their child. And I, I think women are very judgmental about I, that. I think that whole area, you see a lot of intense judgment about your pregnancy and what you eat and drink and do during your pregnancy, about how you give birth, you know, yeah. whether where you give birth, who attends your birth, right. um, how you decide to give birth, whether it's medicated, unmedicated, vaginal, surgical, like everybody seems to have an opinion about it, a mm-hmm. strong opinion, a judgy opinion, at a time when you're vulnerable and then... Of course, afterwards, you know, like you mentioned vaccines, what you do with vaccines and what you do with, um, you know, feeding, whether it's your breastfeeding or bottle feeding or a combination of feeding, there's so much intense judgment about it. And, I know. And it's such a – these are – in my mind, they're all very personal decisions. And um, like we should just give people information and support the choices that they make, which is why we do – podcasts like this. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. I mean, both of my kids had formula. Both of my kids had breast milk. And I, I'm a big proponent of you've got to feed your kid. 
right? So whatever you want to give them is your choice. But I, I agree with you. It's interesting that women especially are, you know, so supportive of one another and and this and that, but very judgy when it comes to pregnancy and parenting and vaccines and and everyone seems to be an expert. Everyone's an expert. Yeah, that's right. I start to explore in my mind why people become so judgy about these things. And that's probably a whole nother episode um, getting into the psychology of it. I would like to learn a lot more about what you found out um, through your struggles with breast milk and how you now help other people uh, to avoid those struggles and to learn more about their own breast milk and how they can make sure that it is um, high quality and nutrient rich. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking about family medicine and learning about breast milk with Dr. Stephanie Canelli. Thanks for sharing your story about your second baby and how, despite making a lot of milk, there were growth issues. And how did you learn more about what was going on? Well, that's a really good question because I didn't. Oh. So when I started to look into what was in my milk, um, you'll kind of laugh at this. So I would call different labs and I'd be like, how can I get a calorie count? Like just basic calories. How many? How much am I giving her? And I was told that breast milk is an unknown bodily fluid. What does that mean? Exactly. So what that means is there's – so when we send blood, urine, or stool off to the lab, we use CLIA-certified labs in the United States, which means there's published normative – like there's data that says what is – what could be in there, what the ranges are, and so forth. But there's no published data on what is allowed to be in breast milk, and breast milk is a food. Hmm. So I couldn't find any lab to do this testing. I understand, but we can do it for cow's milk. Correct. Which is breast milk from a cow. Correct. But, but we... breast milk can actually um, carry HIV, cytomegalovirus, and so it has to be processed in a quote-unquote different way because there is the chance of viral transmission to the person handling the breast milk. Okay. So that's why you can't just be like, oh, here's a sample. Tell me what's in it. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I, I chose to change that. So. In in my life, I mean, I, you know, I was one of those good students, went to medical school. I applied to one medical school, got in. Everything's kind of worked itself out. But this breastfeeding thing, 
Yeah. Didn't work itself out. It was so hard because I would sit there and I would practically cry. I did cry actually at my desk and I would say I'd be pumping between patients and you know, trying to get one patient to hurry up because my boobs were killing me and I needed to pump. And I'd pump the milk and, and you know, but again, totally stressed because I had other patients waiting, feeling like I was just, you know, totally burning the candle at both ends. And then for what? You know, I remember the one time my husband came in and I literally pumped a bottle filled with blood. And I think he still has PTSD from that moment. But he looked at me and he's like, why are you doing this? You know, like, please stop. You know, this can't be good for anybody. And, you know, the crazy thing is you actually can give your child. I, I didn't, but you can actually feed them that, that bottle. But the point is, is like as a doctor, I'm like, well, best is breast and liquid gold and all this stuff. And I want to be that mom who just whips out my boob and my kids on there and got it all together. And then I realized, wait a second, I don't. I had to introduce formula. My daughter wasn't gaining weight. The moment I introduced formula, she's pooping regularly, gaining. So, and I, I felt like such a failure. I felt like, I mean, like, wow, I didn't have this down. So then I started, you know, and again, like just having my second kid, being at work full time, I really, my practice really started to hone in on moms and babies, moms and babies. I mean, I would get sometimes five to six new babies in my practice a week. And um, and then this whole breastfeeding thing, I just felt like, okay, I've been there, I've done that. And again, in family medicine, you know, I'm taking care of mom and baby as my patients. It's not like the, just the baby, just the mom. So they would come in, they would feed. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with moms, you know, watching them pump, watching them feed, trying to see if I could help out in whatever way. And that's when I said, okay, this is my new little passion and project in this world because I don't want other moms to feel the way I did. And if I can help them and how I feel like I can kind of help them is because I started my own lab that I can actually tell them what's in their milk. And something as minimal as knowing the calorie count and, you know, it, it actually can reassure moms. So it, it's funny because I think the, the, my biggest critics out there are the ones that say, well, if you know what's in your breast milk, it's actually going to scare moms and it's going to make them not breastfeed. And I, I just go back to where I was personally and I really wanted to know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know what was in my milk, what could I have eaten better, what could I have done. But you never found out. I never found out. So you you developed this after the fact when you were no longer. I started looking milk. into it and, and trying to develop it. It took over two years to get the chemistry right because breast milk is so complex. No, you didn't have anything left in the freezer. No. Oh, bummer. She drank it all. I made sure of that. Even yeah. if she wasn't gaining weight, I still made her drink it all. Cause so you still don't know why she wasn't gaining weight on your. Milk. I can, you know, I think I do know why because I look back and I'm like, I was taking such poor care of myself at the time. So I was burning the candle at both ends, and I had a very active toddler. Um, the one that causes my gray hair right now. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, very jealous of his little sister. And I was trying to do it all. And so what ended up happening was, was I eating well? No. Was I drinking enough? No. I, I, I'm pretty sure that what happened is the calorie count and, you know, the, all the good stuff in the milk just plummeted. Well, let's talk about what is in, in breast milk for a minute. We, we once did, a, um, we have an episode with some of the gals from the formula company Cabrita. I don't know if you've heard of it, but they kind of went through what the government requires in formula or not in formula and how they do their best to model the formula that they make after breast milk 
within the regulations set forth by the government. But, you know, in their mind, breast milk is best if it's best, (laughs) but it may not be best. That's exactly right. I mean, I think you just have to do whatever works. I mean, whatever works for mom and baby. So, and that could be a combination of both. It could be just breast. It could just be formula, whatever works. But breast milk itself is actually a very complex fluid. There's over 1,500 proteins. There's immunoglobulins, cytokines, all this, you know, really important stuff for our immune system. But what I find interesting about this is that, you know, women have wanted to know what's in their milk for a very long time. And it was actually right when I was born that they developed something called a chromatocrit. So they would actually take like the inner part of a pen, like a little capillary tube, spin down milk in a centrifuge, and then measure the fat content with a ruler, Mm -hmm. and then guess how many calories based on that. So the idea of wanting to know what's in milk, that's not new. Breast milk, and and it's interesting because if you look over time, this was studied in the 70s, the 80s, you know, when when breastfeeding was, maybe there's something here to this. And a lot of the studies will have, you know, 10 patients, 15 patients, multiple samples from them, and so forth. So very small sample sizes. And then there's my other critics will say, well, why would you want to look at breast milk? Because it just changes, just changes every day. What changes from within 24 hours is the fat content, total fat. Protein will depend upon how old your child is that you're feeding. So what's really cool about our bodies is that if, let's say, I had a premature infant, my breast milk will be reflective of that. So I'll have a very high protein, low carbohydrate milk, lower in fat, very high protein because the preemies need a lot of protein. And as women go on to breastfeed longer and longer, so the woman who's breastfeeding a toddler, a three-year-old, her protein level will actually be quite low and the fat and carbohydrate will be a little bit higher. So when I study breast milk, I actually look more at term infants because it's, you know, preemies are kind of a whole separate issue. And so it's funny because some people say, oh, well, it changes and changes and changes. What changes throughout a 24-hour period is the total fat content. And so there was this whole, at first, you know, there was always this notion of it's all about foremilk and hindmilk. That first milk that comes out, which foremilk is sometimes defined as like the first ounce or the first couple of minutes that the baby or pump is on, that's the foremilk. It's just very watery, not very good. Should we just be feeding the hindmilk? What research has shown, and this is why I personally go away from speaking about foremilk milk or hind milk is that all of the milk is good because in that first milk, you get a lot of free fatty acids. So it's not just about when I talk about looking at milk and what's in milk, I'm not talking just total fat, calorie, protein, carbohydrate. I'm looking at the fatty acids. What can a mom do to change that? Some things don't change in milk, right? Why why would we want to change it? Or how can they make it better? How can they make it the best possible? That's why Mm -hmm. I'd say we'd want to, you know, change it. Or what is affected by a mom and what is not affected by a mom? So like certain minerals like zinc, sodium, phosphorus, they don't change. Vitamin D, for example, is universally low milk of all species, whether it's cow, sheep, goat, or human. So we need to give our kiddos vitamin D supplements, right? That's, that's the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation. It's also um, low in iron, but a mom who eats or is able to take some supplements or eats foods that are very rich in iron, they can actually have higher iron concentration in their milk. You have my mind swirling on vitamin D. Yeah. If every mammal species has milk with low vitamin D, why do we think that babies need more vitamin D? Human milk is, well, cow's milk is fortified with vitamin D. We fortify it with vitamin D. I'm just wondering if our innate intelligence says don't put a lot of vitamin D in there, why do we feel like they, that 
babies need more, whether they're human or cow babies or sheep babies or goat babies. Yeah. It's interesting because I think that, you know, vitamin D has been shown for bone development and so forth. But I think that came from studies with kids with very low vitamin D deficiencies. And those were not kids in the United States. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it's the data is is not necessarily our population. I just wonder, like, why, do, why does our innate intelligence skimp on the vitamin D? Is it because we can add more vitamin D, but we want to, or or our bodies just say you don't need that much vitamin D? I think it's because we can add it, and I think that studies found that actually kids can do a little bit better with it over with time. With more vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in terms of you, you also, another question that pops into my head is you said, how much can a mom influence her milk, the content of her milk, um, based on what she's eating or not eating or exposed to or not exposed to? Do you have an answer to that? Do you test people and then make changes and then retest the milk? That's exactly what we do. And so what we look at are things that are only affected by a mom's diet. So the list isn't that long. You know, for example, we look at vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin B12, iron, calcium, and the fatty acids that we don't make, the ones that are called essential fatty acids, which our bodies, you know, don't make, we have to consume. And then we actually have been looking at some toxins in breast milk too. And that's kind of interesting because lately we've had a group of women who've had high arsenic levels in their breast milk. And mm. arsenic is a known carcinogen or cancer-causing agent. And again, this isn't to scare moms because every time we found this, we found a reason for it. And then the mom can just change. So arsenic is most commonly found in the ground. And the most common source of arsenic in breast milk is rice. And mm. so we had a couple moms where they just stopped eating rice and the arsenic disappeared. Oh, wow. It actually leaves the body quite quickly. So that was kind of interesting. We've had some moms test positive for lead, and that's probably coming from their drinking water. And the big one, you know, of course, throughout pregnancy and afterward is mercury and fish. You know, just to caution breastfeeding moms about not consuming too much fish. So you're looking at both sides. You're looking looking at at things that are in there that potentially we would not want in there. Yes. And things that may be lacking that we'd like to beef up. Exactly. Okay. Like vitamin A, for example. I mean, we see that it, the easiest way to change that is to just eat more orange vegetables. I mean, it's it, it's an easy thing. So when we look at the milk, a lot of times these are just dietary things. Eat a little bit more of this, eat a little bit more of that, and you're good. What is the nature of the mechanics of the test? How is it done and where is it done? It's done in the, in the uh, mom's home. So and they, they get a kit? They get a kit. And they have these little test tubes that are sent to them. And the key is, is that we don't just test one point in time. So mom collects milk throughout at least a 24-hour period. High milk and four milk and... All of it. Mixes it all together. Mix it all together. Exactly. We don't want just a one sample, one point in time. We want the, you know, the 24-hour thing. Because so, so what studies found is that, yes, it's the fat that changes, but over a 24-hour period, it's not significantly different. It's significantly different from mother to mother, but not within that same mom. Why is it significantly different from mother to mother? Is it the age that you were talking about, age of the baby? Or if two mothers have the same age baby, the fat content in their milk will be it's the vary la- from person to person? It's the latter. Milk changes significantly from mother to mother. Forget about the age of the baby. And that has to do with the how many milk ducts in the breast and you know how... There's so many factors there, but it's significantly different from mother to mother. And you're saying it shouldn't be? No, I'm saying it it is. That's just a fact. I'm just saying within that same mom, 
that over a 24-hour period, there's not... Oh, it's not, not going to change that much. Right, yeah. At this minute, it may be higher exactly. or lower, but over 20, it, the, the average... The things kind gonna, of balance out over a 24-hour period, exactly. Again and again yeah. and again. So, but if you find different content from mother to mother, if you find a mother that has, let's say, lower fat content, is that something you would want to raise? Like... Let me go back a little bit. You said that when you're testing lab tests, generally speaking, we have known values that are normal and things that are above or below or too high or too low. Are you creating values like that because they didn't exist for the different components of breast milk? That's a really good question. That's exactly what we did. So I pulled every study known to mankind on term baby milk. So not preterm, not preemies. And we then looked at what range was ever reported. And that's how we pooled our ranges together. There's certain things we know, you know, from studies, for example, DHA is an omega-3 fatty acid that's been studied quite a bit with, you know, infant brain development, cognition. I mean, there was even one study that said high DHA is linked, had an IQ relationship. I'm not too sure about that. But the point is DHA has been well studied. And so we kind of know what the optimal level there is. So we can, you know, we can say, okay, well, that mom in particular, let's say if DHA in particular is low, we'd say, okay, we'll make sure you're, you know, eating these foods or taking a supplement or something like that. And do you have that published somewhere? We're publishing. You're publishing. I just submitted another case report today. So actually a mom reached out to me, a fellow doctor, and she unfortunately had to have chemotherapy while breastfeeding. And we actually are publishing a case report of cisplatin, which was the name of the chemo drug, in her breast milk. And there's only one previous case report study that's been published that showed it was out of the milk at 66 hours after the last dose of uh, chemo, mm-hmm. So, which is kind of implying, okay, maybe it's safe to breastfeed again. Unfortunately, we found that it was still present after 159 days after she wow. received her first dose. So it's really revolutionary what you're doing. Well, you know, I have these days where I feel like an innovator and then I have these days where it's it's tough. It's tough to sometimes go against these critics who are like, well, breast milk is such a dynamic thing. Actually, it's total fat really that changes. Protein will change significantly over time and I mean weeks. Well, but hold on. we want a yeah. revolution. I've I've never heard of an easy re- revolution, but first of all, not everything is for everyone. That's exactly true. And so people who are curious about their breast milk or somebody who is a very nice human being and has a child and goes back to work and is pumping tons of milk and their baby's not growing, could literally be crying and pulling out their hair and want to know what's going on. And you've created a test where they can learn more about it and potentially do something about it. Well, what's really interesting is I had another little patient um, who came to me at six weeks of life. Mom's also a doctor too. She's an OB. And the baby's just crying throughout the whole visit, which is not that unusual, right? And we tested the mom's milk, and her milk was, and her baby wasn't gaining weight. So, not quite failure to thrive, but getting there. Mm-hmm. And her baby wasn't gaining nearly enough weight. So, we tested her milk, and then, for example, we found it had significantly more calories than the average infant formula, which made us look into okay, well, then why is this kid not gaining weight? So, we were able to rule out the milk, and then we realized it was actually absorption issues, and the child had severe reflux. Mm. So, again, I think it's another tool we could use into not just saying, oh, well, it right. must be the milk. It, it must gives be you a closer look if if you want it. Exactly. It is now available to you. Well, I've always felt like for me, I like information. I like data. It doesn't scare me. I think we live in a world where everyone just picks up their phone and you can find out whatever you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think it's the same thing. I mean, you're exactly right. This isn't for everybody. And it's the same way when, you know, a patient's going to come into my office and be like, oh, can I have this blood work done? Or I'm curious what my thyroid level's like or my blood count. You know, that that's the person I'm talking about, the person who avoids the doctor like the plague. This is probably not for them, too, you know? Gosh, we're running out of time and I want to know more. Uh, no, it's not you. I love everything you're saying. Um, so I'm going to go in two different directions. Number one, revolutions are not easy. This is not for everyone. So for people who want to know or need to know or curious or would like to see if there's things that they can do to change the quality of their milk, they can do this test. You're not forcing anybody to do it. For somebody who's either nursing great and the baby's thriving great, they may not want to know. They may not care. That's fine. You don't have to do it, right? Not only are revolutions difficult, we have already determined this is a very judgy, passionate area, breastfeeding or feeding infant nutrition in general. And so critics are going to be very passionately vocal, I would think, um, and supporters are probably also going to be very passionately vocal and deeply appreciative. So I'm grateful that you're, you know, you've taken your experience, which was difficult, and you're taking that experience and making it different for other people down the road, giving them an option that didn't exist before. I think it's kind of amazing. The other area that I wanted to go into was we started to talk about, so you send, if someone wants a kit, you send a kit and milk is collected over a 24-hour window, hind milk, front milk, and in-between milk. And then what do they do with that? They freeze it and they send it back to us. And so this is not for consumption. So um, we've never really had the samples thaw or anything like that, but people don't have to worry about that. Then they get an individualized report with what is in there, what we found, and some recommendations in terms of diet and maybe what supplements to take. And it's pretty simple. And you mentioned earlier that you, someone who's testing the milk could pick up potentially diseases from the milk. So did you, you have a way around that? Yeah, we, we use um, lab protocols like we would be dealing with blood or urine or stool. Okay. Yeah. How long does it take? It depends on what people want to know, the quick one, just the basic. Oh, there are different levels. Oh, sorry. We have different different options. So the, the full test right now is probably about 14, um, 14 days to get all the fatty acids. The fatty acid test is actually probably the most difficult because it's so time-consuming to do. And then they get back recommendations. That's exactly right. So data plus, you know. And they're individualized. So I think, you know, I just think, and I don't know, maybe we need another podcast for this, but I do think that the whole, you know, people are taking more charge of their health. They're looking for that holistic practitioner. And guidelines are guidelines. People want to know what they should do. Mm-hmm. So these are very individualized, you know, it's it's for that person. It's based on what the that, you know, sample told us. I love it. And that comes full circle back to family That's medicine. That's exactly right. Um, I learned a lot. I love when we have guests on, and I'm I just really take home a lot of information. I know our audience is going to take home a lot of information, and um, they're going to want to find you online. Where can we find you online? Uh, the easiest place is uh, lactationlab.com. Lactationlab.com, and then also one other question is: Is there a listing of family physicians like throughout the country, like where somebody can go search for a family medical doctor for themselves? Yeah. I recommend searching on the American Academy of Family Physician website. Beautiful. Thank you again so much for being here and at home. Thanks for listening to us. If you like our program, share us with your friends and leave us feedback in your podcast app. If you'd like more pregnancy and parenting-related media, visit informedpregnancy.com. I got a ho!